Who is Jesus Christ? And what is Christianity? Obviously, there are many conflicting answers to these questions. Some even argue that for this very reason, we should dismiss them altogether. Have you heard this objection? I've heard the objection from people. I've heard people in our church share that objection from individuals with whom they're sharing the gospel. All of these opinions, nothing objective, It just proves that it's not even a worthy conversation. What does it matter who Jesus is? Imagine you're on an airplane and the pilot announces that he must make an emergency landing. And at his directions, all of the passengers rush to the windows, searching the earth far below to locate a safe landing place if possible. The sun is setting and it's very hard to make things out on the earth below. But as the passengers are looking, they see this dark strip on the ground. They really don't know what it is, but they begin to debate among themselves. Some are sure that it's a narrow river, and to land on that would be sure death. There's others who are arguing, saying it's a, it's a, long, train, a long train of cars that it, it's, it's, it would kill us if we landed on that. It's a, it's a railroad. There's others that are saying, I think it's a dirt road. There's a possibility here. We might land on this and live. It's a dirt road. And others say, it's it's a road of sorts. But what it is, it's a swath through the trees on the side of a mountain for utility lines. We land on that, we're dead. We're going to crash into the mountain. And others say, yeah, it's a clearing in the woods. It's a private landing strip. All this debate... Different answers, different ideas, no one quite sure what that strip is. What kind of dolt stands up in the middle of that and says, well, listen, people, we can't agree, so this is an irrelevant question. Let's just dismiss it because we can't get along anyway on this. Let's just forget about it. No, that would be ridiculous. There is an objective answer as to that dark strip's identity, and the answer really, really matters. In like manner, the true identity of Jesus Christ must be objectively determined. And it really matters. There are eternal consequences to the answer, who is Jesus? So we realize we'll not agree with everyone. We won't agree with the majority by any means. But this is a worthy consideration for each of us to continue to learn who Christ is, and therefore what Christianity is. We should note that the questions are organically related. Fail to rightly identify Jesus Christ, and you lose Christianity. Every Christian cult fails at this very point. They make fundamental errors about who Jesus is, which leads to twisted views about Christianity. And this is all the more true of secularists and proponents of false religion. This integral relationship between Christ and true Christianity is not really paralleled in world religions. Gautama Buddha, arguably the greatest Buddha of history, could be eliminated from the pages of history. And the tenets of Buddhism would still be honored by Buddhists worldwide. 
Could Islam exist without Muhammad? Muhammad is believed to be the last in a series of prophets and the one chosen to receive the supreme revelation from Allah. But talk to a Muslim. They will concede that Allah was free to choose a different prophet to receive these revelations recorded in the Quran. It didn't have to be Muhammad. It could have been any. Allah was free to do as He chose in that area. But in contrast, Christianity is Jesus Christ. He is not merely its chief teacher. He is its very essence. Without Christ, there is no Christianity. Recognizing that the true identity of Christ is essential to the Christian faith, the Apostle Paul pens a classic statement revealing who Jesus is. And we as His people and as His followers need to feed on this truth as we turn to Colossians 1 again this morning. In Colossians 1, I remind you that he writes from prison to a church that he has not met in person. In verses 1-14, through 14, as we noted last week, he celebrates the fruits of of genuine spiritual life. They're being evidenced in the lives and in the deeds of these followers of Christ at Colossae. And Paul knows what this means. It means that the risen Christ has chosen them, is saving them, is producing His fruit within, him, within them. Paul knows how this works. It's been produced in him. It's been produced in the churches. He's had direct labor Within, So Paul has a firm grasp of the process that Jesus employs in the building up of his church, and he sees it here. Remember, an evangelist takes the message to a location. That message travels with that evangelist. And there are people there blinded by their sin, but the seed of the gospel is planted, and there is a response of faith to that message of Christ crucified and risen. And in the blindness and in the darkness, in their lost condition, there is a response to that gospel. There is repentance and there is new life in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So Paul rejoices when he sees evidences of this true conversion in the life of the Colossian believers. But we remember Paul is also concerned. Because false teachers threaten the faith of the Colossians. And so, starting at 1.15... Paul presents the inoculating truth against the disease of false doctrine, namely an orthodox understanding of Jesus. A high Christology is essential to fight off the false doctrines that will attack the faith. And we learn, as he makes very clear, starting here in this theological discussion, having rejoiced in their salvation, he says and teaches this church and teaches Eden Baptist Church, That Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God. That is, mankind is made in or as the image of God, and Jesus is the image of God. This says to us that Jesus is the visible, objective tangible manifestation, representation, and reality of the invisible God. Paul will also clarify Jesus possesses all the fullness of God. He is all that God could be. But it is unique. 
in the sense that it is in tangible, visible, touchable flesh. He is the image of God. He is the firstborn of every firstborn of all creation. We find there in verse 15 the next phrase. Some professed Christians claim that the word firstborn supports the idea that Jesus was born. Who is Jesus? How do you read this? He's firstborn. That means he had a birthday. He had a start and a beginning. Arius, the 4th century bishop from Alexandria, Egypt, taught that there was a time when Jesus was not. There was a day the firstborn was created, and some Christian groups follow this teaching to this day. Now, Arius was not saying, I want to attack the Christian faith. He was saying, I represent the Christian faith in all of its fullness, in its orthodoxy. Jesus was firstborn. Jesus had a beginning. And if you honor the Scriptures, you'll believe this, was Arius' point. The word firstborn, the Greek word, could indeed refer to someone who was born first in a family. But in the ancient world, the Greek term was commonly used in reference to one's primary position in an institution or in a family or something of the like, and it had no regard for birth order. I slowly, through the year, worked my way through the Psalter of Scripture, praying it, thinking about it, reading it, and in the providence of God, Psalm 89 this week. Perhaps it was last week, but I saw it and saw the connection here. We read this all the time. We don't really think about it as we're reading the Bible, but Psalm 89, God blessing King David in this psalm says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now we, anybody that knows the Bible, really almost at all, would recognize that King David wasn't the firstborn son in his family, right? I'm going to make you the firstborn son in your family. No, is he saying, I'm going to make you the firstborn king on the earth, the first one that was born? I mean, it's ridiculous. Clearly, the idea is that he will be the highest of the kings of the earth. Notice there that firstborn means highest, and it does not have anything to do with birth order. So we at least recognize that the word can be taken that way. In Jewish writings, this word is used even in reference to Yahweh Himself. And no Jewish reader ever read that to mean that God had a birthday. So firstborn, at least recognized, can be taken figuratively. It can be used to speak of one who is highest, preeminent, first in importance. That in all things He may have the first place we've sung today. Well, let's talk with our friend who doesn't believe this and says that firstborn just can't get around it, can't work through this. If Jesus is firstborn, then he had to have a beginning. Let's talk through it, not only from the standpoint of the Greek word and how it's used in the ancient world, but just from the text here in Colossians itself. Let me ask you then, our friend, You say, I am the firstborn for. Fill that in. I'm the firstborn for. You say, what do you mean? Well, give some ground, some explanation. Why do you say that you are the firstborn? And our friend answers and says, I'm the first of three siblings that my mother bore to my father. 
So I am the firstborn. That's what it means. But let's think about this passage and how it works itself out. This is what you mean by firstborn, something along these lines. But Jesus is the firstborn for what? What is the ground? What is the reason? What is the support? Why are we saying that he is the firstborn? Well, you're going to conclude, right, that Jesus had a mother. Would you say that? Well, no, no, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that he has a mother. That, that's, that's not reading firstborn the right way. Well, then you're saying that he has siblings at least, right? If he's the firstborn, there's, like you, there's three siblings and you're the firstborn, so Jesus has to have siblings, right? No, no, I'm not saying that. Well, what are you saying? He is the firstborn for this reason. He has no mother. He has no siblings. But he was created by the Father as a divine being, a small God, small G God. We'll acknowledge he doesn't have mother, he doesn't have siblings, but he was created by the Father as a divine being. That's the four. That's the explanation or the ground as to why he is the firstborn. But what does verse 16 say? He is the firstborn, verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So on the screen here, we see it developed this way. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, for... By Him all things were created. That is not because God created Him at a certain place in time. It's saying something very different than that. It's saying that He is the Creator of all things. It's in this sense that He is the firstborn. The text does not say anything about Yahweh, or God the Father, creating Jesus. What it says is that all creation is by Him. I think a better translation would be in Him, giving the sense that He is the outer circle. We can't really do this spatially. It doesn't work when you're the creator and the initiator of all. But in a sense, He's the outer circle or the sphere within which all creation comes into being. You see there in verse 16, it also says that through Him, is all creation. That, is, that speaks of agency. He actively created all things. It says that they are created for Him. That is that He is the ultimate goal and the focus of creation. So to summarize it this way, Jesus is the encompassing circle of creation. He is its master craftsman and He is the consummate goal toward which all creation is pointed. This is who Jesus is. And this high Christology we must embrace as the true revelation of the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. The Apostle John, agreeing, said, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Nothing was made apart from Christ. you got two boxes here. you got things made and things not made. Which box do you put Jesus in? He does not fit in the box of the things that were created, according to John 1.3, according to first, uh, Colossians 1 and verse 16. All things are created by Him, that is, in Him. By Him is the agent, through Him, to Him, 
for him. He is the goal. Now we've noted there in verse 16, we haven't noted, that uh, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. This is a, a reference to the angelic realm, whether fallen or elect. He creates it all. He is the creator of absolutely everything that is created. This is Christ. I might talk to five people here. You go, why are we laboring over this so hard? We realize that everything that I'm saying here, there are people who take the name Christian who deny what we're saying. We're not going to all what they think and how they get there and how they put this, but we're just looking at the pure statement of Scripture. He is the firstborn for he is the creator of everything. He has the first place. He is prominent. He is the creator. Not long ago, a man joined our membership through baptism. I won't name him. His his initials are Mark Anderson, but... uh, I asked Mark if I could tell his story here. We'll cut that out of the tape because we don't want to offend unnecessarily. We want to defend on the, on, a, on the truth. But he joined us having been many years in a Christian church. And in all those years in that church, he never heard that Jesus was the creator of the universe. It wasn't because he didn't go often. He was there in the heart and involved deeply in the ministry of that Christian church, but this concept had never crossed his mind. It was brand new news to him. Not to pick at a church, but to think about many churches in this condition, many young people growing up within these churches that never hear that Christ is creator. We have to ask the question, why is that the case? Why do churches take that direction? To teach churchgoers that Jesus is a good man, a compassionate caregiver, a healer, a helper, a man of grace, a man of responsibility and duty, and then never to declare that he is the creator of all things, I suggest is sub-Christian. It's not the true Christ. Could you imagine, within the context of this church, that we have a five-star general in our assembly and nobody ever happens to mention that? We have a young woman who comes into the membership of our church and she's an aspiring Olympic gymnast and nobody ever mentions that aspect of her life, even though she's training for hours every day. It's her very identity. It's who she is. How do you meet the true Christ, and not know that He's the Creator. The only reason is that there's an agenda to create Jesus into the image of our making. And we must be cautious that we not do that. This is uncomfortable news. Because we're talking about a man who very recently died on a cross. And we're saying of this man that he is the creator of all things. Is he? Do we believe that? Is it true? Getting Jesus wrong loses Christianity. All things created by him, for him, through him. 
He is the goal. And verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. What is more, He is before all things. That is the word used here figuratively of importance, but uh, could be of importance, but Paul never uses the word that way. He always uses it in relationship to time. And I think that is the idea that He is before, in time, all things. That is, He is God. He pre-exists the creation. And of course He does, because He is the Creator of everything. Of the angelic realm, of the physical realm, of everything. And so He is before. He exists before all things. And in Him all things hold together. They find their cohesion. Their, he, he exercises the cohesive power that holds the universe together. He's not, he not only made it, the point is he sustains it. Could Christianity exist without Jesus? The answer is the universe could not exist without Jesus. He made it and he holds it together, this risen Christ. He is the creator and sustainer of this universe. Verses 15 to 17. We move to what is the second portion, most likely, of an ancient hymn, most likely the second section, and most likely a hymn. There's debate on that, but this beautiful uh, wording, and very likely the case, that we have an ancient hymn here. At verse 18, we move into a second section. That is that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe, his relationship with the universe. But now we see that Jesus is sovereign Lord over the new creation as well. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. This means that Jesus is the absolute sovereign authority over the church, over the people that He has saved out of this world. One author says, in the ancient world, the head was conceived to be the governing member of the body, that which both controlled it and provided for its life and sustenance. So the cohesiveness that Jesus supplies to the universe is a cohesiveness that He supplies to the church, His people. He holds the universe together and He holds the church together by His sovereign power. And He is her sovereign Lord. What does it matter? Eden Baptist Church, it matters, doesn't it? We must be vigilantly aware that Jesus is the head of this church. We must practice an awareness of His Lordship over all that we do. We must also consciously labor to assure that He is seen as preeminent among us. That it's not about us, but that it is about Him. There's a spirit that a church exudes. And it is imperfect, and it's not always easy to define immediately, but do we exude the idea that Christ is preeminent here. That this is not about us, that it is about Him. And that we are serving the risen Christ day after day together in our homes and in the congregation here. He is indeed the firstborn from the dead. That is His right, His priority. Again, the term speaks of preeminence, but here probably also with a temporal sense. That is, Jesus was the first to rise from the dead, never to die again, and we follow in His train. We are following His lead in that to a resurrection life. By His resurrection, He becomes the head of a new order. The author of a new age in which His resurrection is now the pattern for our final redemption. Those who trust in Christ's saving grace 
will rise from the dead. Those who reject Christ's saving grace will die the second death in hell, separated from that resurrection life. One author says the resurrection of Jesus is his supreme title to supreme lordship. By his resurrection he has shown that he has conquered every enemy and every opposing power and there is nothing in life or death which can hold him. The final triumph of the resurrection has given him the right to be Lord of all. And this one who has defeated death, we sing of him today, he will hold me fast. He's defeated death. There's no enemy. There's nothing that can bring him down. Because he is God. He has earned this preeminence in one sense, but not in another sense, as if he needed to earn it, but rather more in the sense that prior to his resurrection, there was no such first place to occupy. But now in his resurrection, he is in that first place. Now through his historical, physical resurrection, the church is formed and we enjoy resurrection life in Him, our head. In spiritual, organic union with Christ, He is the head of the church. He is, secondly, we find here in the second section, the reconciler of the universe. He reconciles sinners to Himself, but He reconciles the universe as well. Verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him, in whom all fullness was pleased to dwell, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. He reconciles all things as the embodiment of God's fullness. What did God fill in the Old Testament? We see on a number of occasions, He filled the temple. Christ is now, in a sense, the new temple where God meets with His people and the fullness of God is in Christ. The analogy certainly breaks down, but there's a sense here that we must grasp this. There really is no other way to say more precisely that Jesus is all that God is. All of the fullness of the divine dwells in Him bodily. And you can just about hear Paul as he puts the period on the sentence. There probably weren't any. But as he does that to say, deal with it. Deal with it. This is who he is. All the fullness of the divine dwells in him. If Jesus is created at a certain point in eternity past, If he's created at a certain point in time, there was a time when he was not, and then he was created. Jesus is not infinite. He does not always exist, but he has a starting place. And in that moment, we realize that all the fullness of God does not dwell in him. Which is why some, even who claim the name Christianity, speak of Jesus as a God with a small g. Because he's not infinite. He's, he had a start. He had a beginning. But we read here that all the fullness dwelt in him. All the fullness of the divine. All that God is was pleased to dwell in Christ. It's an amazing thing. And we understand why people reject it. A man pre-exists creation. 
A man that walks on the earth that we see. He creates the universe. He holds it together. He rises from the dead. And in Him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And you want me to believe that He is just a nice man and a good teacher? I can't do that. But we have to come to the point of saying this is crazy or this is the truth. There's really no middle ground. He can't be parts and pieces of this package. He was a man who walked on earth and he's a man who created it. Either that is insanity or it is the truth that God has revealed to his people. But back to the point, Christ's reconciling work is cosmic. It encompasses the created order in its fullness. By Christ's death, God secures the peace that will supply the reconciliation of all things to Christ in the end. All will not be saved, but the universe itself will return to its rightful place, free of the curse. Christ's death secures that. We don't see it now, but it's coming. It is assured because of His resurrection power. He reconciles all things as the embodiment of God's fullness, and He reconciles His people as their deliverer from sin. Verse 21 and following. In verses 15 through 20, we likely have this hymn that we have been encountering of the, of the person of Christ, revealing who He is. Now, in verses 21 to 23, Paul applies the universal reconciling work of Christ directly to these believers. And here's the beauty and the wonder for us. All that is said of Christ in all of His greatness and supremacy... We're part of that. We're in that. This risen Christ is winning a people for His name, verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who you were. Hostile to God. Hostile in your mind. Where it all begins. The thoughts of our mind alienating us from God. And then you notice there in verse 21, doing evil deeds. The evil thoughts of our mind that Christ is not Lord. That I own my own life. That the best way for me to live is to get out of it what I want. It's all hostile to God. And it results in godless deeds. Things that harm others. Things that eventually destroy us. That's where you were. You once were alienated from Him. You had a different plan, a different idea. You were in rebellion against God, however much you knew it. That's where you were doing evil deeds. But notice verse 22. He has now reconciled you in His body of flesh by His death. That is what has been called a laborious phrase. To reconcile to himself, I'm sorry, verse 22, to now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. As O'Brien puts it, it is loaded with polemical overtones. That means Paul's talking to people without exactly naming them. Let's get this straight and let me be really pointed, he says. His body... Not a mirage. His real body of flesh. By his death, he reconciles you to the Father. 
So the Colossians were under the influence of false teachers who denied that a man could reconcile sinners to God and therefore look down on Christ. They pointed, it seems, perhaps to some sort of mystical way of perhaps angels who are mediators between God and man and this emanations from the divine, whatever they actually believed. The New Testament consistently reveals and Paul insists that the physical sacrifice of Christ's body was the necessary payment by which to rescue sinners from God's wrath and secure the final resurrection of all who believe in the work of Christ. It was utterly essential. And again, we have Christian teachers, usually every Easter, they'll show up in the newspaper to say, it really doesn't matter if he died and rose again. Well, they all agree, died. But it doesn't really matter if he rose again. What does Paul say? This is how he reconciled you. By his physical sacrifice and the resurrection that followed, it's by this that he became the head of the church. And so as verse 22 continues, in order that, why? Why does He reconcile us? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. His stamp is on our lives. Do you declare as a testimony of faith, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. He died to pay the penalty of my sin. He rose again and I have His resurrection life. If that's the case, do we see the connection here? That He does not simply dole out salvation as a gift of future reward, but He wants to, He longs to, for the love of you and for the glory of His name, He wants to see us change now. And He's changing us. We're going to be reconciled. We're going to be resurrected. We're going to be glorified. Let's get it going now. And that's the very purpose for which he saves us. Notice what verse 22 says. In order that, or in order to, present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Certainly in eternity, but now. As verse 23 will bring out. These words, holy, blameless, above reproach, these adjectives speak of the purity of life in Jesus. They're really not very distinct, but they speak of the growing purity of the believer that is consistently seen and witnessed by those about us. This is why he saved us. This is what the risen Christ is up to, to present us holy before him. There is a warning, however, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. They were in danger of not being stable and steadfast. They were in danger of shifting their view about Christ and His significance, His supremacy, His preeminence. They weren't really sure about that in the light of the false teaching that was facing them. So he says to them, it is vital that you continue to trust. It is vital that you continue to hold on to the faith. Perseverance attests to genuine faith. Obedience is the organic result of true faith. So when Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, he's not saying that by obedience you will keep yourself in the faith. If you're obedient, you'll remain saved. Only God can do that. Only God can keep us. He will hold me fast. We didn't sing to ourselves today, we will hold ourselves fast. 
He will hold me fast. Only He can do this. But Paul is saying that those who genuinely believe in Christ crucified and risen will continue believing. They will continue growing. They will actively respond pursuing holy life as they have been reconciled to God by Christ. We may grow very slowly. Moral failures will certainly come. And we will need to know a life of repentance. But by God's grace, believers cling to the hope of the gospel until they see Christ. They don't abandon it somewhere along the line. What is vital to see here is that Jesus dies in order to present His people before the Father in purity. That's His project. That's the project of the local church. That is the project of the body of Christ. This is what we are about. Not financial gain not merely social connection. What the church exists to do is to work out and encourage the purity of its members. That they would be holy and blameless and above reproach. There's wonderful friendships that we can find along the way. And there are things that we can accomplish in this world, a difference that we can make on a lot of levels. But let's remember that this is why we are here. This is why we exist, that we would encourage and exhort one another with words to continue on in the faith, continue holding to Christ as our head, and growing in faithfulness and holiness. We are here to grieve with those who grieve. We are here to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are here to pray with one another and for one another. A few took up the challenge last week, by the way, a little aside, to take the prayer directory, to figure out how to do it, however distance you want to make, and to pray for one another. Some things got started after last week's sermon. Praise the Lord. Continue to do that. Continue to think of it. Are you a praying member of this church? Do you uphold the purity of the members here in daily persistent prayer before the Father. You're going to have to start some sort of schedule. You're going to have to develop some type of discipline. But whether it's a prayer directory or just a list of names, however you do it, consistently pray in behalf of the purity of the members of this church. And when you do, what are you doing? Now you're linking with the purpose of the risen Christ. That's why He's brought us together. And so we together as members encouraging each other and building one another up in the faith pray that one another would grow in the faith. You can look back at the verses that precede verse 15 for such a prayer. This gospel message has been, it says here in verse 23, proclaimed in all creation under heaven. This does not mean every soul on earth has heard the gospel at the time that Paul writes It is probably to be taken as a figure of speech as when we speak about people all over the place, something along those lines. And certainly that message was available to all. It was announced in the world. It was alive through the message of Christ and it needed to continue to be taken to people in darkness. That's who they were, once alienated and hostile in mind through their evil deeds. The message of Christ crucified and risen reached them. And now, says Paul, we've got to put down deeper roots into who He really is. You have seen Him for the Savior that He is. Know that He is the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe. 
He is the preeminent one in all creation. And through His salvation, He has reconciled you to the Father, and He will one day bring redemption and reconciliation even to the created order that has fallen in the curse. This is who Christ is. Who is He? It's a question we must answer rightly, or we lose Christianity. Somebody might even be tempted to say, who cares? What does it really matter who Jesus Christ is? Why spend this kind of time thinking through this sort of discussion? Well, it's here, again, to come back to the point that Christianity so differs differs fundamentally with the religions of the world. To lose Christianity, we would not merely lose a social system or a way of life. When people begin to create Jesus into the small image that they prefer, the kinds of images with which they feel safe, what happens is not simply that we lose a religious system, what we lose is life. We lose our vital relationship with the risen Christ who is our head. And that is the distinctiveness of our faith. The false religions of this world celebrate the birth of their founders. They also remember to varying degrees the day of their death. They do not gather one day each week to remember the resurrection of their founder. Only the followers of Christ celebrate their leader's bodily resurrection and eternal reign. Because He is God, He had the power to defeat death. And because He is alive, He has the power to continue to redeem a people for His own. If you do not know Christ in a personal way, you do not have the sense that you have joined Him in faith and become united with Him, I plead with you in light of this passage, do not enter eternity to face this Christ as your judge. Be reconciled to God. You can have a relationship established with Him to be right before Him who is a perfect judge. True Christianity is not following a list of rules. It's not paying anything. It's not even in its essence necessarily attending anything. True Christianity is a living relationship with the true Christ. And I would invite you to come into that relationship today. It is there. It is in every place announced to those who will come in faith. For those of us who know Christ, can we not rejoice? Rejoice that our life is in Him, not in ourselves, but that He will hold us fast. To submit to His leadership, His headship over the church is certainly our calling as well. This filtering, this this fertilization and watering of our knowledge of the true Christ is intended to deepen us and to mold us into holding fast to the truth of who He is and submitting to Him as a body of believers. Certainly we cannot see this without proclaiming Christ 
to a world that does not know of reconciliation with God, except on its own terms, and they always fail. We have this message. We have this message to proclaim this week and the next, and as we look into the future, as these summer months come to an end eventually here, we have opportunities to reach our neighborhood in unique ways, and we need to continue to reach our individual neighborhoods throughout the year proclaiming Christ. Certainly, as we look at this passage, we can rest in the fact that He has the universe and its history in the palm of His hand. And so He has me in the palm of His hand. He holds us fast. He holds us secure. There is nothing that can get to you as a true believer in Christ that doesn't pass through Jesus Christ first. Nothing. You're not an exception. We don't have some unique experience that cancels that truth. Nothing can touch me that doesn't pass through Jesus. Is He mighty to save? Is He sovereign and able to protect? Who is this Christ that is the guardian of your life? The gate through which every experience passes. He is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, and He is the head of the new creation, the redeemed people of God. In Him we place our trust because He is absolutely worthy of it. He is worthy of it. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, I trust we've been praying and seeking Your face through these words God, I pray that you will continue to deepen us in a knowledge of who Christ is and therefore in an experience of genuine Christianity as a relationship with you, the living head of the church, our Savior. We pray in behalf of those separated from this truth and ask that you'll continue to point them to Christ. And Lord, as we face attacks against the true identity of Jesus, May we hold fast to the faith and may we do so as you hold fast to us. We know above all that we must trust you for this and we do. Help us to be faithful to the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of its fullness, in all of its truth. And clinging to Christ, may we rejoice that we have been reconciled and will one day be glorified to become like Him in His presence and yours. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and for a few moments in silence reflect upon the truth of Christ 